you're under stress, your sleep is almost guaranteed to be messed up. And ironically, it's really easy to disrupt sleep under stress when actually sleeping is one of the things which will actually help you to become well again. In virtually every single medical appointment I went to, they asked me the same question. How are you sleeping? And so I was wondering, what do the doctors know about stress and sleep? They all know that if you're under stress, you aren't sleeping. In episode two, I shared with you the the phases of professional burnout. And you may recall that the first phase is rest. Uh, There's a reason for this. If you're really stressed out, you will have disordered sleeping. And when you burn out, your body is exhausted and demands that you finally get the rest that it was denied. What I learned about sleep uh, mainly comes from my six-week stay in hospital. We had a weekly seminar on sleeping and the sleep cycle. Um, Now, I'm not going to try and cover all the materials there, so I'll just give you a really highly summarized view on sleeping and how it related to my burnout. Um, we need to think of our sleep as part of a full 24 hour a day circadian rhythm. And this involves the, the full cycle of hormones produced by our endocrine system. And if anything happens to that cycle during any point in the day, there's a potential that your sleep will become disordered. And it is really, really easy to mess up your sleep cycle, as I'm sure most of you kind of already worked out. But what are we like when we don't get a good sleep? Well, I don't know about you, but I feel like I get the emotional capacity of a toddler. Physically, I actually feel really weak, and I feel like I lose the motor control to some extent. My perception of what is happening around me is usually way off, and my emotional responses to those things are usually not very helpful. So this is why I have to make sure that I take care of sleep. In a normal rhythm, what happens is as daylight fades and it gets dark, the level of cortisol in your bloodstream will decline, your core temperature will dip, and the level of melatonin increases. And that is when you get sleepy and it's possible for you to fall asleep. This is a very oversimplified view of what's happening. Um, But it's really important to take note of that so that you have this in mind as a way to get some solutions for better sleeping. So let's talk about how that cycle gets messed up. And it's really simple. Just think about something upsetting you're doing in your job. And your body does not distinguish between dangers that are happening in real time or your perception of danger. And when you think about something that triggers the fear response, your bodily body just goes ahead and sends adrenaline and noradrenaline into your blood, even if it's not happening like at that moment. Just thinking about it actually starts that. So you get put into that lion chasing mode um, and your body is going, oh, no, we're not going to sleep. We have to stay alive. Now, the problem is, is that your mind is racing Um, when you're in a burnout and you cannot stop thinking about something bothering you. And so it becomes impossible to clear out the adrenaline from your blood so that melatonin can rise again. So for most people, they need to get somewhere around seven to eight hours of sleep at night 
to go through a full cycle of sleeping in order to get the amount of recovery and rest to function optimally. Now, I'd like to get into a question about sleep aids and medication. You always have to talk to your doctor about medication. Uh, don't take any advice from me on medication. And your doctor will give you recommendations on what you should take based on your full health picture and what you're experiencing and things like how intense your sleep disruption actually is. And your pharmacist should have a full view of all the medications that you're taking and will understand how those medications are interacting with each other. So you should also be thinking of your pharmacist as an important member of your medical team, if you haven't already done that. And make sure that they, they actually have a full view of all your medications in one pharmacy. So when they fill a medication, they're actually seeing, oh, you're also taking these two things. And make sure you talk to them about um, any over-the-counter nutritional supplements that you could be taking, which also have um, interactions with uh, prescription medication. You know, I did have some negative perceptions about taking medication. Every morning when I was getting up and taking a regime of pills and every evening when I was taking sleep medication, I did sort of feel like somehow that was not right. Um, and I had to overcome those feelings and tell myself, the doctors are doing what they know works and they are giving me things that are safe and I'm being monitored for undesired drug responses, and all of this is temporary. Now, I, I do believe that my body has the ability to heal itself, and that if I set up really good conditions for that, it will restore itself to health. I, uh, but I have to acknowledge that I was so unwell that I was completely unable to create those idyllic conditions, and my body really did need some support. And one of those supports was taking sleep medication. I had to actually admit that the medication was helping me as well. Many years ago, I once held a job where I felt like I didn't sleep for 18 months. My sleep was so disrupted by the stress of my professional life, I was running on empty day after day. I had a young child who I was raising by myself, and if you two are a working parent, uh, being sleep-deprived is pretty normal. Even if you're not working outside the home and you have children, being sleep-deprived is pretty normal with children. But I had the idea that I could catch up my sleep on the weekends, and as it turns out, this is not really true. You need a good night of sleep every night. And if you have disrupted sleep on one night, it does not affect you for one day. It actually affects you for several days, depending on how disrupted that sleep actually is. During my burnout, I was experiencing hypersomnia, which is constantly sleeping. Um, even before I left my job, I was sleeping 10 hours or more a night sometimes. Uh, and, and this is not as common as people who actually develop insomnia under stress. Most of the people who I encountered during the burnout who were also in burnout were not sleeping. They actually had a lot of difficulty falling asleep and they would wake up in the night and struggle to fall asleep again. So most of the people I was surrounded by were discussing insomnia. What I experienced was that I was not waking up feeling very well rested um, so I, I knew that I was waking up and from a night of sleep that was not very good quality. I was also having nightmares. 
Um, now, the good news is, is if, if you are uh, getting nightmares, you're actually in the dreaming phase of sleep. And in that phase of sleep, there is a restorative element. Uh, but if you're, <laughs> the bad news is, is if you're having dreams that wake you up like a nightmare sometimes does, it breaks you out of that positive sleep cycle. So one of the questions that I had in my sleep seminar uh, that I attended in the hospital was what the purpose of dreaming was and specifically why do people get nightmares? Uh, so the answer I got really does make sense. Firstly, what they told me was that there's no clear um, understood purpose of dreaming. They actually are not 100% certain. It's only what they think it does. The belief is that dreams are part of our emotional processing systems. So maybe think about some of the dreams that you yourself has had. I have some strange dreams sometimes and they're kind of like a Twin Peaks, David Lynch, serialistic uh, twist on your relationships or events of your day. Uh, we feel emotions in dreams. And for me, the predominant things that come from my dreams are actually emotions. The events don't make sense, but the, the emotions are really clear. And it's like a poorly directed movie with characters that don't make any sense uh, at all. But the emotions, well, those are really clear. A nightmare is something much more terrifying and intense than our David Lynch dreams. Uh, particularly when I was in the hospital, I did have some pretty terrible nightmares. What was interesting about those nightmares is that there was no events in them. It was more a sense of being in darkness and feeling terrorized by strong emotions of fear. So nothing was actually happening in the nightmare. It was just dreaming in, in fear, uh, purely an emotional dream. For me, I just see this as another example of the memories that I had put into boxes and put them up on that shelf in my mind in that closet, all still waiting there, showing up again and saying to me, hey, Angela, we need to deal with this. And so I had to. My, my body and my mind weren't giving me a choice. I mean, literally, when you go to sleep at night and you get a nightmare, that's not a choice. But by this time in the burnout, I felt like my mind and body were so beyond my control that I simply went, okay, this is what we're doing today. And I just started to accept that I was it was purposeful for my recovery and that I was safe to do that. I mean, I was, I was sitting in a hospital when all of this was happening. I think about it now and I kind of laugh. I mean, <laughs> I was probably screaming all night long um, and I was in a room by myself, so there was no one in that room for me to disturb. My husband was miles away. And if he had been there, no doubt he would have woken me up from the nightmares and ended all that processing of those emotional boxes. So in retrospect, I do think of those bad nights as an important and purposeful part of the recovery. Uh, what we do is we create mental walls against our suffering as a kind of protection. Um, but that doesn't work forever. Eventually, those walls start to collapse under enough pressure. And if you're strong, you do hold up those walls with enormous effort. Uh, therefore, the collapse can be very dramatic as it was for me. The stronger the person, the harder the collapse when it eventually breaks. And for me, that's really fascinating. Because I was having some pretty terrifying emotional experiences that really told me that those walls had collapsed pretty hard. Now, I, I'm guessing that you're probably saying to yourself, well, okay, this is fine, but I'm here to find out how I can improve sleep. Now, I can tell you a lot of things that 
are stuff that you already know for the most part. Um, sleep hygiene is really the bare minimum that you can do. Uh, and you might be saying, okay, well, what is sleep hygiene? It's quite simply just setting the scene in your bedroom for a better sleep. There are a few elements like setting a sleep schedule and uh, keeping your bedroom as a sleep sanctuary. Your bedroom should really only be used for sleeping. You shouldn't really be watching television or eating in your bedroom. You need to have um, a form of operant conditioning so that when you enter the room, your brain registers, ah, this is the place where I sleep. Now, part of your sleep hygiene is something about light because your brain actually responds to light as part of that circadian rhythm. And when the light hits your eye, it sends a signal for you to get up and it triggers this hormonally. So what happens is once light comes into a room and it gets to your eye, it slows the production of melatonin and increases cortisol. And this is the wake up formula. So if you have any sources of light in your bedroom, I would suggest that you eliminate them. Myself, I'm very light sensitive. And if there's even a tiny light from an electronic device or from under a door, I cover it up. Staying in hotels for me is just the worst. Uh, televisions have those red lights on them, which keeps me awake. And even the digital clock at the bedside interferes with sleep. When my husband and I go to a hotel, I do a light sweep uh, and use all the towels to cover everything that has light on it. My husband gets very annoyed by this, but it um, it is important for me to get sleep. Um, I even use that internet hack where um, you use like one of those hangers that has clips on it to fully close the curtains. They, they used to religiously tell us that blue light from our electronics was disturbing our sleep and to not to use them in the evening before you go to bed. I can't remember how long I told you beforehand. I think now they've done some research on this and they're saying that that's not actually true. Uh, honestly, it's not the blue light that messes up your sleep, but all the stressful things that you see on your phone or your tablet, you know, notifications every five minutes, distressing emails, banking, silly things on social media that stress us out, or even just getting thinking the news. I mean, you name it, you know what you look at on your, on your phone. The case to stay away from those devices is that a lot of what they do is they bring stress to us in the evening right before we're trying to, to prepare for sleep. I would also say um, if you're talking about hygiene, noises will also wake you up. Your brain is programmed to keep you safe at night by responding to sounds, which the amygdala registers as potentially dangerous. So at bedtime, your home should be dark and quiet. My husband actually uses podcasts to create a background noise to fall asleep to. And on a recent visit, um, I realized that one of my kids was using a white noise machine, which was kind of strange. But I would say, you know, you, you'll find out what works for you. The point about noises is that it should be something that soothes you as opposed to something that disturbs you. Um, myself, when I go on vacation to a place that we're near the ocean, I usually like to sleep with the doors open so that I can hear the sound of the ocean, which I find really, really soothing, even though it's not a sound that I'm used to. So again, do what works for you. There's other things which fall into the category of sleep hygiene, like things like eating before bedtime or some rituals of relaxation, like taking a bath which will absolutely help you improve your sleep. My approach to better sleep 
you know, if you're thinking about, I probably need to fix the hygiene is just to simply make an assessment of what might be poor sleep hygiene, and then change the setup of the room or your routine, which you think can improve sleep. If you're chronically stressed, all the sleep hygiene in the world won't get you back to a sound restorative night of sleep. And the main reason you aren't sleeping is because your body is flooded with stress hormones and those are suppressing the hormones which induce sleep. And this is why doctors give you medication to fall asleep because uh, in the short term, you can't stop that from happening and you need to actually just get to sleep. So what exactly is happening at night when you're sleeping? There are four phases of sleep that they have measured and you go through these phases a few times a night. Researchers and doctors can find a correlation between the length of time in those phases and how rested you feel when you're up in the morning. Now, I don't want to go through all that technical element of the phases of sleep. What you need to know is that you would need a continuous sleep of around seven to eight hours, and you need to be getting to a good sleep pattern while you're in your bed. So just a note on napping. Um, napping is a great way to help you in the moment, but most of the time napping is a sign that your nighttime sleep is actually disordered. So in our seminars at the hospital, they suggested to not nap through the day. What they suggested was doing something called increasing sleep pressure. Uh, and what that really is, is, is to get yourself very, very tired by the time bedtime uh, shows up. And what that does is it increases the probability of getting a good sleep at night. And, and you know this, if you've taken a nap during the day, um, how is your nighttime sleep? Well, for me, it's usually not as good as what I would really have needed. Now, let's be clear, if you're in the early stages of burnout, you're likely still in that rest phase. So if you just need to sleep like I did, uh, do it. I struggled to be awake for more than 10 hours per day for a long time during my rest phase. And it took months for my sleep to stabilize to a kind of like a normal level. I, I finally just had to give myself permission to accept that the quality of sleep that I was having was uh, not good. Uh, the length of sleep I was having was way long and I just to go with it. Um, you can tell if you are sleeping okay based on how you feel upon awakening. And, and really, that's what should be your guide for sleeping. And you, and you know it. If you wake up tired, you should be asking the question, well, what can I do to maybe get that a little bit better for tomorrow? Now, we have already established that you are largely not in control of when your amygdala sends out a stress response. So that frontal lobe doesn't have time to override the amygdala before it starts. So it's doing it without consent from your frontal lobe. Stress happens both when you are in danger circumstances and when you're thinking about it. And your brain does, doesn't distinguish between the actual danger and your mental review of the event. Your stress hormones don't drop until you're able to stop thinking about the stress. Now, if you are chronically stressed like I was, your body isn't dropping the stress hormones in a cycle of up and down throughout the day. It just stays high like it was for me. And frankly, I hadn't even noticed how agitated I felt every day because I just got used to it. I started to feel normal. 
at that level and going into the circumstances that triggered the professional burnout, I actually had a pretty solid sleep routine and had already cleaned up most of the sort of sleep hygiene habits that would have interfered with sleep. When I met my husband, he wanted to eat and watch television in bed with a dog. Sweet guy. I was like, no, absolutely not. Because I knew that if we started doing that, I wouldn't sleep well anymore. He tried to get a television into our bedroom for years and it never happened. I never allowed it. My husband is actually a pretty terrible sleeper, if I'm honest. And um, and so I didn't want to introduce things that I knew which would actually make the sleeping situation worse. At the beginning of the burnout, um, I was actually continually told to disconnect from the source of my stress. And that was really hard to do, as I've mentioned before. In fact, I found it nearly impossible. There, There's a reason why they're asking all of us to disconnect from our stress. They were asking me to break the chain of events, events which trigger the stress cycle hormone cascade. And when I entered the hospital, they were doing the same thing. Near the end of that six weeks hospitalization, one of the staff members said to me that the first two weeks of the hospitalization is meant to just try and get us to relax. So they don't even try to get us to a recovery for one third of that stay. Um, It's the first two weeks are just to end that disordered hormone overload as much as possible to start dealing with what's going on. What your body is meant to do with stress hormones is to trigger a response to danger, move you to an action which takes you to safety, and when you're safe, send out hormones which um, repair and relax your body. Your hormones cycle up and then down cycle in a healthy way. But in a burnout, you never get to safety and relax and repair hormones do not get triggered. So we end up going through a whole day with an elevated response to what's going on, even when nothing is really happening. Your stress response system isn't a one-way superhighway that travels from the amygdala to your body. What it's doing is it's also taking messages in the other direction too. And those hormones tighten your muscles and cause you to breathe rapidly. Those are things that you can override with the frontal lobe. You can relax your shoulders and slow your breathing. And that actually sends a signal to your brain that becomes an input into your stress response. Because your eyes have stopped seeing danger, you have relaxed and you took some long, slow breaths. They, what that does is it tells your amygdala, okay, the danger has passed. Let's get to the repair and relax hormones. This is why we get told to take a few deep breaths when we're overstimulated. It actually does calm your stress response system. Okay, I, I don't want to kid you um, that you can be that you can overcome a burnout with any kind of deep breathing exercises. I mean, think about it. This hospital I went to was spending two weeks, two weeks getting their patients to relax enough to actually start treatment. Your body is crashing out due to stress and your systems are going into a failure pattern that takes much, much more than breathing and relaxation to get things under control and to normalize. That is to say, 
Breathing helps, but it isn't the solution. In my first week, I recall telling my therapist that I felt like I had cortisol continually running through my body. Now, it was probably adrenaline I was feeling, but I was saying to him, I feel like I'm never relaxed. It was in this session that he signed me up for biofeedback, one of the therapies that I took during my stay. And basically, it's a therapy that shows you how to calm your stress response system through synchronization of your heart and breathing. So I managed to control the function of my heart with my breath and relaxation. I mean, it's a really, really good therapy. But there are lots of other things you can do to improve your evening relaxation routine. You can meditate. Some people exercise. You can take a warm bath or even socialization can actually help. You, you know what relaxes you in the evening. And you just have to be willing to do it. Sleep doesn't become good again until you have relaxed your stress system. It's that devil cycle all over again. You need a good night of sleep to break off the stress response, and you need to calm the stress response to sleep well. And that will not be fixed with better sleep hygiene. Yes, do it because you need to stack all the cards in your favor. Do a relaxation routine to get yourself relaxed as you can, and then take medication that your doctor has prescribed to knock yourself out, quite frankly. Look, sleep is critical to recovery. And the most obvious thing that you have to do to sleep well is to break away from the thing that is causing you stress. And for me, it was my job and the situation I was in at work. I had to leave it behind so that my body had the chance to repair the damage to my stress response system. And that's not a short-term repair job. Neurons that fire together, wire together. Do you remember that from an earlier podcast? My brain was wired for this response, and so I had to rewire it. And the only way to do that is to relax and stay out of the stressful environment for a long time. Think of sleeping as a way to take care of your health. It is critical for your health. Sleep when you need it and treat your bedroom as a kind of recovery sanctuary. And with that, I hope you have a good sleep. Right now, you might be waiting for a miracle. And I just want to remind you that you are the miracle.